take out your Bibles and let's open to the book of Galatians. I'm speaking this morning on God's law of sowing and reaping, or the law of the harvest, maybe you could call it, but God's law of sowing and reaping. You know, in the physical universe, we have certain inviolable laws, physical laws that we think of gravity or the second law of thermodynamics or whatever. And over time, scientists have discovered them primarily in latter generations here. And then they've been recorded in the science and history books. And even though the Bible was written millennia before most scientists ever lived, I think I've read that 90-some percent of all the scientists in the history of the world are alive right now. So we're living certainly in a scientific age. But even though the Bible was written millennia before most scientific truths were discovered, whenever the Bible touches upon science, it's always accurate which is a wonderful evidence for its divine authorship. For example, it says of the creator, he stretches out the north over the empty spaces and hangs the earth on nothing. Now, if you're familiar with ancient mythology, whether it be Greek or Roman, they had Atlas holding up the earth. In the Hindu culture, they have the earth on top of a tortoise, which is on top of an elephant holding up the earth. They can't imagine. Ancient man couldn't imagine the earth just being out there hanging on nothing, as the scripture says. Job says again, he says, he wraps up the water in his clouds and the clouds do not burst under them. They're holding so much moisture, they can contain it until God says, let go. He has inscribed, I'm continuing to read from Job 26, he has inscribed the circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Long before the voyages of Columbus or Magellan or any of the other intrepid explorers proved that the earth was round, the Bible told us that for thousands of years before it was discovered by we would say modern man. Isaiah wrote, it is he who sits above the vault of the earth, Isaiah 40, 22. That word vault is the Hebrew word hug, which means circle or sphere. So he sits above the sphere of the earth, the Bible says, 700 years before the time of Christ or almost 3,000 years ago. So just as science textbooks should reveal truth from the spiritual realm, and by the way, certainly history textbooks are being rewritten. We all recognize that, which is deplorable. But science textbooks are being rewritten as well, such as global warming and all kinds of other things. But just as science textbooks should reveal physical truths and laws, the Bible is a textbook that reveals moral and spiritual laws, just like a textbook for science. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, contains such a law that operates always in the moral, spiritual realm. And a wise person is diligent to learn God's laws. And then be careful to observe God's law. So let's talk about that here this morning. God's law of sowing and reaping. First of all, verse 7, the divine law stated. He tells us what it is. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Here's the law. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. 
I'm saying this first thing he tells us in the first phrase there, even before he gets to the law, technically, he's telling us to guard your heart. God immediately attaches a warning to this law. And it's because of our depraved nature and the deception of Satan that mankind is prone to think, I'm above the law or I can escape this law. I can circumvent this moral, spiritual law that maybe God has put in place, but I'm going to be the exception. That's our depraved nature and Satan's deception. What does he say here? Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Don't be deceived about this. You're not an exception. Deceived is the Greek word planeo, which means to be led astray. It's similar to the word that Paul uses here in chapter 3, verse 1. And he says to them, O Galatians, I'm amazed that someone has bewitched you. That's the word that he uses. Very similar to this word, bewitched, tricked, deceived, hoodwinked, maybe we would say. So God is saying to us, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Now, the Galatians were being the primary purpose of Paul's letter is to remind them they were being deceived by what was known as the Judaizers, the legalists that came in and said, you can't really become a Christian unless you keep the Old Testament law. And you certainly can't live the Christian life if you ignore the Old Testament Jewish law. So they were coming in and saying, you got to keep all these law. Yeah, you may be a believer in Christ, but you got to keep the law. And Paul is saying, who's bewitched you? Who's deceived you into believing that? That's not how you heard the gospel preached from me. Same idea, bewitched, deceived, and God says it to us. It's always sad when someone deceives us. And we've all been deceived before. My mind immediately goes to politics, but uh, we've all been deceived at times. And we kind of get angry about it. We get frustrated about it. They said one thing, they did another. They never planned on doing that. It's one thing to be deceived by someone else, but it's really tragic when we deceive ourselves. Self-deception is the worst kind of deception. And that's really what God is uh, warning us about in this verse. And we understand that because of the inclination of our heart. We're inclined to believe a lie. The inclination of our heart and the inherent darkness in our thinking that we need the Spirit's constant illumination and the Spirit's constant protection. We need to be steeped in the Word of God so we're, we're not self-deceived. Matter of fact, Jeremiah 17.9 says it this way, The heart is deceitful above all else. And desperately wicked, who doesn't know it? So our heart is deceitful. We get deceived by our own heart, our darkened thinking. That's why we need the Word of God and a verse like these, verses like these, to warn us about being deceived, that somehow we're going to escape this inviolable law that God has placed in the spiritual moral realm. When someone fails to acknowledge the seriousness of their sin. Their heart is deceived. And God is mocked, he says. And God is mocked. And the second consequence is more serious probably than the first one. It's one thing to be deceived, but to mock God. That seems even more serious. To mock God is very serious. It means to treat him with contempt. The word is to turn up our nose. That's the etymology of the word. It's to turn up our nose towards God. God, I know you say that. Forget you. 
It's to treat God with contempt or it's to treat God with scorn. It's sometimes translated. God, I know you've said that. I don't buy it. I don't believe it. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to be the exception. The popular writer, and he was a good writer, and he experienced a lot in his lifetime. Ernest Hemingway, I've been to his home down in Key West, Florida. Ernest Hemingway became famous for mocking God. As a matter of fact, at one point, he even wrote a parody of the Lord's Prayer, mocking God. He mocked God concerning morality, declaring that his own life proved that a person could do anything he wanted without paying the consequences, and he lived a very immoral life. He considered the Bible antiquated and a hindrance to his own personal pleasure. In the end, his debauched life, he was a heavy drinker, even a drug user in those days. In the end of his life, his life was so debauched that it led him into such despair and hopelessness, he put a bullet through his brain. Oscar Wilde, same thing, great literary writer, but his perverted homosexual lifestyle caused him not only to get arrested, but to take his life. God is not mocked. Don't be deceived about it. There is a law, and we're going to look at the law, and that is what a man sows, that is what he is going to reap. Guard your heart, he tells us at the very beginning. And then I'm saying it this way, consider your seed. That's what the second part of verse 7 is telling us. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. This is a rudimentary law of agriculture. We all get that. It's self-evident. You don't plant watermelons and get uh, corn. So we get that. We reap what we sow. That's what the Bible is saying. Anybody that's had a garden, anybody that's grew up on a farm or lived on a farm knows you reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow or we'd all be in trouble. You reap later than what you sow. The Bible is telling us we reap what we sow. It's an impartial. In other words, it doesn't work for some people and not work for others. It's impartial. It's predictable. You can count on it. And it's immutable. It doesn't change from generation to generation. We don't plant peas and get corn. We don't sow sinful thoughts, words, and actions and reap the blessing of God. Sometimes people wonder, well, how come I don't have the blessing of God? What are you sowing? That's what we should be asking. You know, a person's character is often the product of the seed that was planted in his very early years or her early years of childhood. A child that's allowed to always have their own way grows up to becoming an adult thinking, I've got to have my own way. And on and on, the law is spelled out. A person's behavior isn't changed until their character is changed. And their character isn't changed until their nature is changed. And their nature is changed as a result of becoming a new creature in Christ. 
People like to change their character, but they got to change their nature. And that only happens when they come to know Jesus Christ the Savior. The greatest thing that someone can do if they have habits and, and proclivities in their life that they despise and are causing them problems is to come to Jesus Christ and then memorize the Word of God. It changes, it literally changes your character, the way you think and the way you act. We have to change our thinking before we can change our acting. And that only happens when we have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us to enable us and the Word of God in our mind and in our heart so we know what is right. That's how we change our character and our actions. We see so much about people going to psychologists. You can sit on a psychologist's couch and listen to his counseling, but that isn't going to change you. You can go to a psychiatrist and he can prescribe you drugs and put you in a fog. But that isn't going to change your action. It isn't going to change your character. It isn't going to change your nature. It's God that changes us from the inside out. So the warning contained in this verse should make us stop and it should make us evaluate exactly what kind of lifestyle seeds, if I can say it that way, what kind of lifestyle seeds are we sowing? Realizing that those seeds are going into a life and the lives around us and they're going to blossom, they're going to grow, and they're going to bring forth a bountiful harvest. As you know, I think everybody here knows, I grew up on a dairy farm. I have two brothers who are still farming. I remember hearing the story about the, the Michigan farmer that won the Powerball lottery and won like $75 million or something. And the, you know, the media was there and said, what are you going to do with the money? You're a farmer. He said, I'm just going to keep farming until it's all gone. It's, it's not a real profitable enterprise. It really isn't. But my dad would have never sowed seed in the ground if he didn't believe that it's going to come back and it's not going to be a seed. It's going to be a plant. And that plant is going to produce a bountiful harvest. And that's true in God's universe, in his spiritual universe. What we sow, we will reap, but we'll reap much more than what we sow. It's true in the negative realm and that's true in the positive realm. We need to stop and evaluate what kind of seed am I sowing? Number two, I see in verse eight, the divine law explained. It's very simple. He says, we either sow to the flesh or we sow to the spirit. The Christian, and I'm speaking to Christians, Christians only have one of two fields that they're going to sow in. You're either going to sow in the field of your flesh or you're going to sow in the field of the spirit, the Bible says. The flesh refers to our unsanctified humanness. The Bible uses a number of different terms. Unsanctified humanness is not really a Bible term, but it talks about the old man or the flesh. It's an unredeemed humanity, we would say. It's our flesh which awaits the day of glorification, Romans 8.23. Someday this body, our spirit's already been redeemed, but someday our body is going to be redeemed. Right now we're in the process of sanctification, but someday I'm going to be glorified, you're going to be glorified, and we're going to be completely redeemed. Salvation is fully complete. Not just our heart, our soul, but our body is going to be redeemed. So it's the unsanctified humanist waiting for glorification. But in the meantime, 
our flesh he warns us about. We either sow to our flesh or the spirit. In the meantime, our flesh can produce all manner of selfish, fleshly desires. That includes everything from blatant immorality to a coolness and aloofness towards the things of God. All the extremes and everything in the middle is our flesh. The person who he says here who sows to the flesh is really pandering to his evil desires. And we all have them, no matter how long we've been saved. It is pandering to your evil desire instead of letting the Spirit subdue those desires and put them down. He submits to his passions instead of overcoming them. The Christian life is often likened to a battle, to a war. And as long as we're in this flesh, as long as we're in this body, there is a war going on with our evil desires. And we have to submit to God and subdue those evil desires. Or otherwise, we're sowing to our flesh. And we can't overcome them on our own. We need the Spirit's help. Notice what he says here in verse 8. He talks about the corruption. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. The word there for corruption means to become degenerate. Degeneration is the idea. Going from better to worse. It's used in the ancient world to describe decaying food. Food that becomes rotten. Food that was once healthful is now harmful. Something that was good is now becoming bad. If we sow to our flesh, we're going to be on that degenerate downward spiral, that slide towards that which is sickening. The desires of the flesh are always corruptive. Always corruptive and they lead downward. So a Christian, that's who Paul is writing to, that's who I'm speaking to, a Christian, although saved from ultimate corruption, because ultimate corruption is hell, although we're saved from ultimate corruption resulting in death and hell, a Christian can still choose sin and reap corruption in this life. We've been saved from hell. We know that. God doesn't renege on his promises. He doesn't make a promise and take it back. We know he's promised to save us and to keep us. So we're not going to hell. But we can still reap corruption in this life, resulting in tragic consequences and even premature death, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So we must not allow our minds to harbor a grudge. We must not entertain impure thoughts. We must not wallow in self-pity, nor can we permit our flesh to indulge in the plethora of sinful activities that are all around us in our world today. We have to say no to those things so we can say yes to the Spirit of God. Because we can't sow in both fields at the same time. Because when we indulge our sinful appetites, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh and will reap corruption. So there's the negative side. He says in the first part of verse 8, look at the other side. But we must sow to the Spirit. The Christian who is preoccupied with the things of God rather than the fleshly things of the world is going to look different and he's going to live differently. And what does he say here? He will produce the fruit of the Spirit. 
When he refers to the Spirit, he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, of the lifestyle that the Spirit is happy with. By the way, the Bible says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. So he, he describes this full orb fruit of the Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, we'll produce the fruit of the Spirit. And by the way, Paul interchanges the word spirit with several different preparatory phrases or verbal phrases. Producing the fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5, and 23 is the same as sowing to the spirit. And that's the same as walking in the spirit, 516. It's the same as being led by the spirit, 518. It's the same as being filled with the spirit. So walking, being led, being filled, having the fruit are all describing the same thing, different aspects of the Spirit's working in us and us cooperating with Him. So the product of sowing to the Spirit, he says, is what? Eternal life. Now don't misunderstand what he's saying here. This is not teaching that only Spirit-filled believers go to heaven. As I'm going to guess, all of us, from time to time, are not spirit-filled because the Bible says we quench the spirit and we grieve the spirit. That doesn't mean he departs from us, but he's not in control of us. It isn't saying that only spirit-filled believers inherit eternal life. That's not what he's saying. Every believer goes to heaven because he's a child of God and a citizen of God's kingdom. When the Bible speaks of eternal life, it's primarily speaking of quality, not duration. When we talk about having eternal life, it's talking about the quality of life. When I got saved many, many years ago now, I inherited eternal life. That doesn't mean I immediately went to heaven and started living eternally, but I had God's life, his eternal life imparted to me and the quality of being a child of God imparted to me now. No sin can separate us from God's eternal heaven. No sin can separate a believer from eternal life, but sin can separate a believer from the enjoyment of eternal life. Tracking with me? Once you're saved, you will always be saved. But just because you're saved doesn't mean that you'll be enjoying this eternal, abundant, God-filled life that starts at salvation and only should be growing and reaches its full bloom when we are glorified and in heaven. Do you know that a persistent sinning believer can be much more miserable than an unbeliever? You say, how can that be? They got eternal life. A persistent sinning believer will be much more miserable than an unbeliever simply because his sin is in constant conflict and warring against his new nature in Christ. He's grieving the spirit. The spirit within him is grieved. He lives with constant guilt because of his sin that's unconfessed. He's in a miserable state. The sinning believer has a battle raging within him that an unbeliever never experienced. And I've experienced that. And I'm going to guess you did. I remember after I got saved, I was saved as a college student. Truthfully, I hate to admit it, but I didn't really plan on doing a whole lot differently. I just thought I got saved. Good. I have eternal life. I asked the Lord to forgive me. And I went back to some of the sinful habits and all that goes along with it. 
And I remember saying as I was at a popular nightclub that I frequent called the Grotto in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I said to my friend George Lovely, I'm not enjoying this like I used to. I don't get it. And George had also gotten saved. He said, let's leave this place. And we did. And truthfully, we never went back. But I remember thinking, I used to come here all the time. I used to drink their booze, dance with the girls. I used to do all of these things, and now it's not fun anymore. Matter of fact, I feel really bad about it because I was grieving the Holy Spirit. Now, I was a brand new Christian. I was grieving the Holy Spirit. I didn't know the Word of God. And George and I began to study the Bible. We knew on Friday nights we shouldn't be going back there anymore. And by the way, we weren't in a church. At that time, we weren't in a church. We were in the process of kind of thinking we needed to go to church. But we started reading the Bible to one another in our car. We didn't really want to sit around at home. So we would drive around. I'd read some verses to him while he was driving and tell him what I thought it meant. There was a lot of heresy taught on those Friday nights. <laughs> then he would read the Bible a little bit and tell me what he thought it meant. And he was always wrong. <laughs> But we began to read the Bible and we began to get convicted about our lifestyle because both of us had a wicked, typical, I'm afraid, unsaved college student lifestyle. And I was miserable until I began to order my life more in line with the Word of God. And some of those habits began to drop off and I don't think I have to delineate them to you. The sinning believer has a battle raging within him that an unbeliever never experiences. You've heard me say it. Sinners leap in the sin and they love it. And that's the way I lived for the first 20 years of my life. I could leap in the sin and thought, man, this is living. This is life. But saints, believers, lapse into sin. They slip in the sin. Saints lapse in the sin and they loathe it. They hate it. When a true believer, when he's ensnared in sin and in the mud slime pit of sin, he hates it. That's not his nature. So you can tell a lot about a person in their true nature by how they respond to sin. The believer who sows to his flesh does not lose the spirit, but he loses the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, etc., the divine law fulfilled, number three, and we find that in verse nine. He says, so he kind of wraps this up now with an, he gives, he gives the warning, he gives the law, he explains this inviolable, immutable, impartial law that we, we sow, we reap, we sow the flesh, we reap the corruption, we sow the spirit, we reap life everlasting, joy, fullness. And now in verse 9, he talks about the law being fulfilled. And he exhorts us, he encourages us. So let us not grow weary while doing good, while living for God, by sowing proper seed, seed that glorifies God. Staying on that analogy. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season, at the right time, and for some cases, that may be at the end of the life, at the end of the age, is when the harvest is made. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The Puritan saint John Brown wrote, many Christians are like children. They would sow and reap in the same day. That's not how it works. 
Not in the physical realm and not in the spiritual realm. We sow, sow, sow for years. We sow, sow, sow sometimes for generations before we really get to reap what we sow. It is easy to become tired of sowing and become anxious for the harvest. That's why the writer in Hebrews exhorts us. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 3, that exhortation to not give up and not to grow weary. There's a great cloud of witnesses that are waiting for us and they're cheering us on, maybe we would say, in heaven. Notice the phrase here in verse 9. Both lose heart and grow weary carry the same idea of becoming exhausted and giving up. Now, I want to empathize here for a moment. Sometimes the Christian life is hard. And sometimes it doesn't always seem as rewarding as we think it should be. And sometimes people throw up their hands and say, this isn't working for me. My marriage failed. Or my kids didn't do what they should have done. Or my finances are in the pits. Or my health is not what God promised as I've lived for him, I think. And we grow weary and we become exhausted. And that's just the opposite of what this verse and so many verses in the New Testament, such as the verse found in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the opposite of being steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, the Bible says. Sometimes, of course, the problem is not spiritual weariness, but spiritual laziness. Yes, we can lose our rewards if we quit, but we can lose potential rewards because we never sought to serve. In this life, we're determining the rewards of the next life. And that should motivate and propel all of us. And many times we sow and we will never see in this life the results of the good deeds, the good influence, the word of God that we sowed into other people's life. We may never see it this side of eternity, but we'll see it in, sometimes we do, certainly, and we thank the Lord for that. We may never see it until we get to glory. If we are persistently faithful in doing good, God promises in due time we shall reap. And Paul is not talking about eternal life, but he's talking here about eternal rewards. So it's possible to serve God for a long time and then give up. And then to quit, to drop out, and to lose the blessing that God intended for us to have. And the reward in eternity, the blessing here and the reward in eternity. That's why Second John 8 says this, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things that we have worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. We don't want to get a partial reward. We don't want to lose our reward. We want to get our full reward. So he says, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't quit. Keep serving. Keep sowing good seed. Let me give you an illustration. I think of that. I hope it's an applicable illustration. I believe it is. After I finished seminary, I went to Falls Baptist Church in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. And I began to work for a church planner. His name was Dave Barba, good guy. And he had planted the church there in Menominee Falls, which is a suburb of uh, Milwaukee. And the church was thriving. It was exciting. They had won many people to Christ. There was just people being saved on a regular basis. People were bringing, it was first generation, bringing their friends. There were a lot of German people in the church sometimes sang in German. It was just an exciting time. God was blessing. 
there was a family that attended on a few occasions named the Janiszewski family. They were outliers. They were occasional attenders. Somehow I had connected with them. And they lived in kind of a rough part of downtown Milwaukee. As things came out, Nancy Janiszewski, she was a Polish gal, she had a sister who was unsaved. I'm not sure if Nancy was saved. I don't think so. But her sister was unsaved, and she had a common-law husband that was living with her, her boyfriend. They weren't getting along. They had a terrible relationship. They were both druggies. Well, Nancy had one brother, and Nancy's brother stopped by Nancy and hers, this other sister, uh, just dropping by, and they were in a fight, and they were on the floor, and he was choking to death his common-law wife, his girlfriend. Well, the brother broke in there, and he got in a fight with him, and it was a fight to the finish, and he killed that common-law husband. Got arrested, of course. Then they needed a funeral, because I knew the Janiszewski, not real well, but we had a kind of a relationship, and they asked me if I would do the funeral, and and Dave Barba, the senior pastor, said, great, because you have more of a relationship with them. And, and so this was my first funeral as a pastor. So I got some material together and went to where the funeral was going to be. As I told you, it was a rough part of Milwaukee that they were. And I got there and I thought, this is not a funeral home. It looked like a vacant building. And there were some people out front and they said, come on in here. Are you the pastor? Because I was the only one that had a suit on and a Bible. And I said, yeah, I am. And they said, come on in here. And we walked down some steps into a dark basement. Now, this is literally the story. We walked into this dark basement, and up front in this small room was the casket. But it was a cardboard casket with two-by-two two strips because they cremated him afterwards. So he's in this cardboard casket, the guy who had been choked to death. Now, in the front row was Nancy and Dave Janiszewski, who I knew. Nobody else I knew there. And sitting next to them is her sister, the common-law wife of this man. Sitting next to him is the brother who had killed the man. He was out on bail for manslaughter. And he was sitting in the front row. And on this side of a few chairs was the family of the man who was dead. What a great setup for preaching. I mean, what a, what a wonderful funeral opportunity. They asked me if I would do this funeral. My first funeral, I was young and I was dumb. I said, yes. Well, I preached the gospel. I didn't know him. I didn't know the family. I only knew them a little bit. I proclaimed the gospel, and I never do this at funerals. It's not anymore. I asked for a show of hands. If you're here today and you're not saved, and we, we don't want you to go to hell, you raise your hand. A large number of people raised their hand. Now, that doesn't normally happen at a funeral. I don't normally ask for a show of hands. A number of people raised their hand, and I led them in the sinner's prayer. Well, then the Janiszewskis wanted to be baptized, and I was excited for that. They'd settled their salvation. They were, of course, grieving over their sister's situation, but they wanted to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. So Dave was going to be gone. Dave Barba, my boss, my senior pastor, was going to be gone. He said, they got saved. You know, you know them better. I'm going to be gone. Baptize them this weekend. This is my first baptism as a pastor. <laughs> so uh, Elmer Lobbs was our custodian. He worked very little, but part-time for the church. 
and he was an older man. He was in, at least in his 70s, mid-70s. In those days, they had those really thick cataract glasses. They looked like Coke bottles on the end of in his glasses. He couldn't see hardly at all. Uh, but uh, he was responsible for filling the tank and turning the heater on Sunday after the service because we baptized on Sunday night. So he did that. Except he overfilled the tank. He couldn't see well enough. And he filled it right up to the top of the ledge there. And he forgot to turn the heater off. So the water was about 104. Just right for a hot tub. And you remember, this is my first baptism. So I put my waders on. Dave had a set of waders, chest waders. And I put those on. They took my suit coat off because we do the baptism. And then we do the preaching. So I put my waders on. And I worked my way down into the tank, and I noticed that the water was like a half an inch just below my waders. I thought, well, this, I don't know about this, you know. And then Nancy appeared. I, I want to I be delicate here, but Nancy was the second biggest person in history that I've ever baptized. The biggest person was Mike Corbett. Mike Corbett built the church. He's about six foot five, and he weighs about 360. And we baptized Mike, and, uh, but I said, Mike, I can't do this by myself, and I can't do it even me and the Holy Spirit. You've got to have to help me. <laughs> so Mike is the biggest person I've ever baptized. This lady was the second biggest person. She was around 250, 260. Of course, with a woman, they're shorter. And I looked up from the baptistry, and I was already sweating. I mean, I was sweating because of water. And I looked up there. She filled up the whole doorway. She'd never been baptized before, so she didn't know what to expect. But she stuck her leg in the water. She took that first step down, and she felt how hot it was. You know, I had waders on. She just had a gown on. She's put her foot in the water, and it was so hot, she screamed. She went, oh! And when she put one leg in the water, that was all it took, and it filled up my waiter. So, so now I started screaming. I said, oh, oh, whoa, whoa. It, it looked like an opera. You know, you got the fat woman singing, and, and I was singing or screaming. But what happened is it gave me the ballast that I needed. It really, because my waiters were filled, it gave me the ballast I needed to get her down. And I never thought about this. Dave always had kind of like a formula. You know what I say up there. When you baptize one, I, I never thought about it until that moment. And I thought, what do I say? I know he always says something here. So my formula was down you go, up you come. <laughs> That's no scriptural connection. So she came into the water and I dunked her back. And I remember Dave said, because he was gone, he said, now this is your first baptism. The main thing is make sure she gets totally baptized. You don't want people come up and their hair is dry or their clothes are dry in the front. Make sure she gets totally baptized. Now everybody in the room knows that fat floats. <laughs> fat floats. So I tipped her back and I looked. There were a couple of things floating. And, and I know those things are sacrosanct, and uh, I'm not going to be booted out of the ministry uh, for this. So she got mostly baptized, <laughs> mostly baptized. Dave asked me that weekend, he said, well, how'd the baptism go? I said, it was memorable, <laughs> memorable. 
they had to help her get out. I couldn't move, you know. So a couple of the deacons had to come up and, you know, they're pulling me up and I'm trying to, you know, dump the waiters out and get out of the tank. And then I had to preach in that suit, of course. Well, there's more to the story. Years afterwards, I was out here at Red Rocks long after I'd left Falls, and I was invited to preach at Bob Jones and the Bible Conference Chapel. And I did, and uh, after I got done with the message, there's several people that wanted to come up and talk, people that I knew and staff and other words that came up and chatted. So I ended up talking to people for quite a while. I noticed there's a blonde-haired guy over here waiting, and he came up and he said, Hi, my name's Chris. I said, do I know you, Chris? And he said, well, I'm Chris Zytowicz. I said, the Zytowiches from Milwaukee, are you related to them? He said, yeah. He said, my dad got saved at that funeral. That you preached for the Janish Weskies. They were our good friends. My dad brought me to Falls Baptist. I got saved. And I didn't know this, but Dan Unruh said that they took, he was on staff at Bob Jones, they took a bus up to Falls Baptist and bring a bunch of prospective students down. And Chris was on that bus and he decided to go to Bob Jones. And I said, Chris, well, you're a student here at Bob Jones. I know your family. I know the background. He said, well, I'm not a student. I said, you're not a student. He said, no, I'm a faculty. I said, wow, out of that background and out of that past and out of that sinful mire, here's a guy teaching at Bible college. What we sow, we reap. We reap later than we sow. We reap more than we sow. Let's sow good seed. Father, thank you that you have a universe that's controlled by certain laws that are impartial, immutable, always in effect. And Lord, we thank you that we have no idea the things you've spared us from and the plans that you have for us if we'll just be faithful. Lord, I want to be faithful. I want to keep sowing the good seed. I want our people to be faithful, doing good deeds, sprinkling the Word of God in the lives of unbelievers, family, friends, co-workers. And we know you'll bring a great harvest. We trust you.